All right, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. We began 1 Peter chapter 1 last week, quick review. Uh, written about 62 AD, which makes it approximately 30 years after the uh, resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. We're still dealing with a relatively young church, only 30 years old. Doctrine is still being worked out. The Apostle Paul in this decade, the, the sixth decade after the turn of the millennial, in the 60s, that is, Paul's writing a lot of his epistles, so the church is really hitting its stride. And the epistle of 1 Peter is written to the saints, the strangers, that means the foreigners, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And we pointed out that at the end of 1 Peter, we know that Paul, excuse me, Peter is writing from Babylon. That is understood by everybody I've read after. It's kind of a reference to Rome. Uh, so Peter has established a church in Rome. He's writing from Rome to encourage all the saints scattered throughout um, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, which is basically uh, Turkey. That's the whole region of Turkey. Looking at the map for you, here is the Mediterranean. Here's the Israeli coast. You go straight up, and now you have the Turkish peninsula here. And so this region that he's talking about is straight up, due north, directly due north in Turkey, due north of the Israeli coast, right up the uh, eastern, I'm trying to do all this reverse in my mind, up the eastern border of the Mediterranean. So this is the region of believers he's writing to, Peter writing from Babylon, or we would say Rome. And it's an exhortation on what to be when you're scattered abroad, what to be when you're a stranger. And one of the things we found in this epistle beginning, and as we just concluded with James a few weeks ago, for all these letters written to people in heartache and hardship, we really find very little American-styled comfort and a lot of biblical-styled exhortation and uh, assignment. A lot of 1 Peter chapter 1 is an exhortation about don't forget about you've been begotten again into a lively hope. You've been sealed by God. And don't worry, the trial of your faith proves that you're, you're strong enough. The trial of your faith is much more precious than of gold that perishes. And it helps us receive the end of our faith. The trial of our faith pressure tests our faith, strengthens our faith, and allows us to endure to the end. He exhorts in verse 13 to gird up the loins of your mind. That is, prepare your mind for action. And then he says, verse 14, don't fashion yourself according to your former lifestyle. Don't let the way you used to be continue to be the schematic for what you're going to be. We talked about the word sukhumatizo, the Greek word where we get the word schematic from. We're not to let our lifestyle pre-Christ be our schematic for how we live today. We would say, having come out of darkness, why would we go back? And then he kind of concludes by saying, we've been born again, not of incorruptible seed, but uh, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible of the word of God that lives and abides forever. And then verse 25 says, the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So a strong uh, conclusion there of chapter one, dealing with the word of God, which is the gospel preached unto us. That lets us pick up in chapter 2, verse 1, with a giant wherefore. And if you know kind of the rules of hermeneutics, we've, we were always taught if a verse says wherefore or therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what's it therefore? Well, it's always therefore, 
the previous verse, the concluding thought that now transitions to the preceding thought. So he says, therefore, therefore what? Well, because we've received the gospel, because the word of God is incorruptible seed that's in us and it wants to abide in us. And if it's a seed, it should be producing something. Therefore, get ready. Here comes a strong exhortation to strangers scattered throughout a region that's not theirs, a region that's Roman occupied, but a region that's not theirs. It doesn't say hunker down, be a prepper doesn't say count your blessings and just wait for Jesus to come. This whole epistle is a call to action. It seems to me that by this time they've begun to realize the Lord's probably not coming back anytime soon. So let's not worry about getting back to Jerusalem. Let's worry about getting the gospel to all the ends of the earth. Therefore, and of course I'm going to read to you from the New Living Translation. That's been my go-to since I used it for the botany Bible, or excuse me, the botany book. It's my version of the Bible I used a lot in the botany book. So let me read to you from the New Living Translation. Therefore, get rid of all evil behavior. King James says, lay aside all malice, all guile, all hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. That's a lot to get rid of. It just kind of bundles it all up into one verse and says, stop it. <laughs> How can I stop it? Well, because you've been born again and the word of God that's in you is incorruptible. You no longer have a corrupt nature within you. It's now incorruptible. So Peter can reasonably require that we get rid of all evil behavior, be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. I like that version, all unkind speech. You know, sometimes when you're a little bit of redneck, you just got to say things just to kind of cut people, all white trash you like. That would be called unkind speech. You got to give those backhanded compliments. You got to build somebody up just so you can sweep their legs out from under them. And the Bible says, stop it. Uh, Mama always said, if you can't say nothing nice, don't say nothing at all. And for some Christians, that would mean just be a mute. Because some people have trouble saying anything polite. And I would also caution you. This comes to me now as I'm teaching on this and meditating on it in the moment. Take inventory of the people you run with, who you sup with. And and just kind of take a, a broad inventory. Something like this. Every time I sit down with brother blank or sister so and so, what do we talk about? If you say, every time I sit down with Sister Jane, we always just talk about everybody and what they're doing wrong. And every time I sit down with Sister Sue, we always seem to talk about what everybody's doing wrong. Well, maybe you should stop sitting down and talking with those people because obviously the two of you together are just sinners. If, on the other hand, you can say, you know what, every time I sit down and talk with Brother Jim, we talk doctrine, we talk scripture, we encourage one another, we pray for each other. That's a pretty good relationship. Be able to recognize where certain relationships bring out unkind speech and then see what you need to do to adjust it so we can fulfill verse 1. Verse 2, like newborn babies. Well, I wonder if he's saying that because it's usually insecure, immature, carnal Christians that are full of deception and hypocrisy and jealousy and unkind speech. You know, little kids kind of throw barbs at each other. You're a meanie weenie, and you're the worst sister in the whole world. 
That's a little child speech. And then he just kind of says in verse 2, like newborn babies. I wonder if one plays off the other as a kind of a little jabbed insult, a little uh, provocation to be better. But verse 2, like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into full into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. So our job is to cry out for spiritual milk so we can grow in this kind of nourishment. We're to cry, cry out and crave it. We're to cry out and crave for it. We never get bored with the simple things. There's a lot of teaching between about milk versus meat and the meat of God's word, but even meat has to be chased down with something. And there's nothing wrong with milk. Uh, milk is a good thing for chasing. Milk is what develops babies. Milk has all the nourishments that a baby needs. I still like drinking milk. Apparently you can get milk from almonds now. We drink that in my household. Uh, we want to make sure that we're, as this verse says, crying out for this nourishment. Pure spiritual milk. Because it allows us to grow into a full experience of salvation. Or as the King James says, that we might grow thereby. Never get bored with the simple things of God's word. In fact, every time you hear the simple things of God's word, see where you can apply it better. See what areas of your life you're not applying it to. I use the example a lot from when I did judo. We covered the basics of judo over and over and over and over and over again. And there were 60 plus throws in the school of judo or you know the martial art. But really, I probably only learned 15 maybe 20, but probably more like 15. And even to this day, I'm still probably only really good at about five. And those are the basics. That's all you needed. Those five are devastating throws. You don't need to go learn all the fancy, frilly, fluffy, deep, mystical, beef jerky things if you haven't learned and mastered the simple things yet. And the simple things will nourish us. One of the observations about Israel being a land that flows with milk and honey, milk being a reference to livestock and the honey being a reference to dates from the date palm tree, is that those two things together, the milk and the dates, was a technically a balanced diet of fats and carbohydrates and proteins and then the carbohydrates and the sugars of the date. And so with milk alone, you can go for quite a while. Now, we don't want to stay there, and it does tell us that we're to be like newborn babes. And in what regard are we to be like newborn babes? In our constant hunger and desire and our crying out for sustenance. Don't be babies in your soul. Don't be babies in your attitude, but be babies in that hungry zeal for more. That hungry zeal for more. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. You are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. And it is interesting talking to the strangers scattered throughout. And we know Peter was an apostle to the Jews. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. We have a lot of Jewish imagery in this epistle. These are Jews who are now born again believers who are no longer part of Jerusalem. And they're being exhorted that don't worry. Don't worry about the temple. I know it was the center and the focal point of your worship of Jehovah Yahweh, but that era has passed. And he brings them back and says, you have come to Christ. You can't go to the church or the temple anymore, but you've come to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. 
He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. It's an exhortation that says, I know you can't go home to Jerusalem, but don't worry, you're the temple. Jesus Christ is the chosen cornerstone. I know you can't go to the temple, but God has a better temple and you're part of it. So you see the exhortation and the encouragement. It's probably hard for us to realize what a critical point of Jewish worship the temple was. It was the focal point of their festivals and their feasts. It was the focal point of where they gave tithes and offerings. It, it would be hard for them to comprehend how to worship God apart from the temple. And maybe think about that for a second. It would be very hard for a first century Jew who has now converted to Christianity to start to worship God apart from the temple when for almost two millennia, 1400 years, the temple was the focal part of Judaism. It's where you had to go at least three times a year to present yourself. It's where you had to bring your Passover lamb to atone for yourself. It's where you had to bring your tithe and offering to honor your God. It was hard to worship God apart from the temple. And yet here comes this new doctrine from Paul echoed by Peter that says, hey, you know what, guys? I know you're scattered abroad and you miss the temple, but you are the temple. You worship God. He's the cornerstone. We're all lively stones. We're built up together, a spiritual house. So don't worry about the temple still in Jerusalem. Furthermore, if the dating of this epistle is accurate and it's 62 AD, the temple won't exist in eight years. The temple will be gone because Titus, not the epistle or the Christian, but Titus, the general, uh, Diocletian's son, uh, he will destroy the temple. Verse four or five, you are living stones that God is building into a spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priest. Once again, another exhortation. They're trying to, they're having trouble transitioning away from how things used to be. And Peter, by the Holy Spirit saying, you're built into his temple and you're his priest. That's shocking because only Levites could be priests. And now what he's saying is, Everybody who's born again gets to be his priest. That actually was prophesied and declared back in Exodus 19. It's the original intent of what God wanted to do with his people. Their sinfulness and their stubbornness at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 caused God to have to take a, a different avenue. I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there. Acts 19, verse 5. They're at the base of Mount Sinai waiting for direction. And the Lord says, now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people for all the earth is mine. You'll be a peculiar treasure unto me. Verse six, and you shall be unto me. This is to the whole nation. You shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And now Peter is saying the same thing. Your spiritual, your lively stones, you're built up a spiritual house. You are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. We now offer up spiritual sacrifices. We're seeing now, 1,400 years after the Exodus, that God is getting back to what he originally wanted, which was for all of his people to be a priesthood offering up spiritual sacrifices. Probably the better news now is that 
even though they would have been priests had they not disobeyed at Sinai, they would have still had to offer up animal sacrifices. We have it better because we are now priests and we don't have to cut animals open and spill blood and slit throats and burn anything. We get to offer up the sacrifice of praise and worship and thanksgiving. And we see that God in his mercy and in his wisdom is advancing the kingdom into better places and into better promises. Verse 6, as the scripture says, I'm placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem chosen for great honor. And anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Or I'm going to read King James. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded or also disappointed, put to shame. Whosoever believeth on the Lord, whosoever trusts in him, shall never be disappointed. Thank God Jesus doesn't disappoint. You don't always understand what he's doing, but he never disappoints. I was talking with somebody recently, and they were out of church. I was talking to somebody was telling me about a friend. And, and they said, you know, they're out of church. And I said, well, why are they out of church? And they said, well, you know, kind of the typical story. They were hurt by people in the church. And, and I said, yeah, me too. <laughs> I totally relate. They were hurt by, by the church and by church members. Yep, me too. Me too. And then I think about my trauma from my high school years and how I was uh, assaulted or violated by a deacon. Yeah. I've been hurt by church people too. But I think the difference is I don't blame the church and I don't blame Christianity. I blame sin. I blame sin. And if we could blame sin and not an institution or an establishment, we could probably still find the good in what God has ordained rather than rejecting what God has ordained because of what the devil was able to succeed at. Don't punish God because the devil succeeded. Serve God to punish the devil and march on to victory. Verse 7, yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Of course, speaking of Jesus Christ. And Peter is exhorting these strangers. He says, yeah, you trust and recognize the honor God has given him, but not everybody does. Not everybody recognizes the honor the Lord God has given to Jesus Christ, his son. We do, though, because we believe in him. Unto us, as the King James says, he's precious. Jesus isn't precious to everybody. I remember witnessing to, actually it was my judo instructor in 1995. His name was Joe. I said, Joe, did you know Jesus died for you? And Mr. Joe was probably 45 years old. He was a Vietnam vet, maybe 50. We were out at his property in McMinnville. And he said, I said, Joe, did you know Jesus Christ died for you? And he said, yeah, well, who asked him to? Like he was upset. I didn't ask the guy to die for me. Yeah, who asked him to? Well, that's somebody to whom Christ is not precious. He's precious to us. We're thankful. We didn't ask him to die for us. He just did because he loved us so much. And unfortunately, Mr. Joe today is dead. I got word of that a couple years ago. And he's probably in hell. 
Thankfully for you and I, we've not rejected that precious cornerstone. We, in fact, have learned to build our lives upon it. So the scripture says the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And the Bible says this is marvelous. Uh, this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in his sight. Verse 8. And here's another verse Peter uses to back up this statement that we're now lively stones built up a spiritual house. He is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. Here's a good word for us. We only stumble when we fail to do God's word. We only stumble when we fail to do God's word. So how do we fix that? We do God's word. They stumble because they do not obey God's word. What we ought to do is read the scripture, not looking for things that we're exempt from, but looking for things that we are committed and bound to, and therefore we do them. He is the stone that makes people stumble because you have to obey him. If you don't obey him, he has no recourse but to stiff arm you. So let's make sure that in our day-to-day -day life, we're looking for more scriptures to obey. We're looking for the will of God in every situation and scenario. We're looking for the will of God, whether we're running a business or teaching a class or taking a course or working out at the gym. Let's not stumble because of disobedience. The ultimate judgment, it says here, is that people who don't obey God's word, they meet the fate that was planned for them. Not the, not the fate that, that they were ordained to, but the fate that was planned. There's a hell, there's a judgment that is planned for every disobedient person. And maybe that's a semantical argument or a shift of perspective, but I don't believe damnation is ordained for everybody. I believe you get there because you earn it through rejecting Christ. Verse 9. But you are not like that. Praise God. No, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Well, that's what we just read in Exodus 19. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Now, remind, I, just, I remind you, he's quoting Exodus 19 that we just read. This is a very Jewish epistle written to the Jews established, or excuse me, scattered abroad in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. So he's using a lot of uh, Torah or Toric language uh, from the Law of Moses, uh, scriptures that would resonate with them. And he's writing these letters, quoting the Old Testament to encourage them. He's reminding them, you've got no temple, but neither did Moses. You've got no tabernacle, and neither did the Jews at Sinai. And you can really see the encouragement here. You're without a nation. You're without a temple. You're without a people. You're scattered abroad. It looks like just how God dealt with our people in the very beginning. They were without a nation. They were without a tabernacle. They were without a land. They were without a people. And yet God was there with them. And he was going to make them a royal generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And that's what he's doing now in the lives of these believers. He said, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And that's what Peter describes these scattered abroad saints as. We know we apply it to our lives as well. We're not like those who disobey. What are we? We're chosen people. We're royal priests, holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. We when we'll walk in this priesthood, if we'll walk in this holiness as a, a holy nation, we'll be able to show people what we got. We'll be able to show people the goodness of God. We'll be able to show folks that you can be called out of darkness too and into God's 
marvelous light. It's ought to encourage us. We don't think of ourselves as worms. We don't think of ourselves as dogs. Quit thinking of yourself as a failure. You know what? We've all been worms and we've all been dogs and we've all been failures. How about we start thinking of ourselves as royal priests? How about we start thinking of ourselves as a holy nation, as a, as, as a nation of priests and kings unto our God, and let's do something with it. He says, we've been called out of darkness into wonderful, marvelous light. Uh, light is wonderful and it is marvelous. Let's not, uh, let's not choose darkness because we can. Verse 10, once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. And I wonder, of course, we know this is written to Jews who've converted to Christianity. I wonder if this season, once you had no identity as a people, I wonder if maybe this doesn't speak to them feeling as though they're vagabonds because the Jews have rejected them, the Gentiles don't want them, and they're somewhere in between as a Messianic Jew or really just an early believer. He's saying, listen, you're God's people now. Or then again, it could apply to Gentile converts who really had no people, and now they're God's people. Either way, it's a word of encouragement to let you know, keep on keeping on. Once you receive no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. So that's some exhortation in the midst of a challenge to march, to be clean, to be holy, to press on, and don't be like the old person. Be like the person God has called you to be. Don't be like the old person. Be like the person Jesus Christ has called you to be. Don't look like the world. Hate the things in your life that resemble the world. Hate the things in, life, in your life that you borrowed from the world that are carnal and sinful. Nothing about you should resemble the carnality of the world. Be better. Verse 11, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners. Now here's this term again, strangers and pilgrims, temporary residents and foreigners. Some of the discussion in the commentaries talk about, now is this, they're kind of asking the question, does this refer to them as being outcasts from Israel and now foreigners in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia? Or is this talk about our pilgrimage in the earth? And I think it's both. To apply it to us, we apply it as pilgrims and sojourners in the earth. Either way, we're being warned. I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners, keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Keep away from worldly desires. So here's a warning. We had a few verses of encouragement. Hey, look, spiritual house, holy priesthood. Hey, look, God's people, yay. And you get to build on the, uh, the stone of offense, the rock of offense, the stone of stumbling, that is Jesus Christ, yay. And now here's a warning, boo. What? Well, yes, here's a warning. This is the second warning. He just said in chapter one, don't follow the old life as your schematic. He's saying it again. I warn you, keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. How does it wage war against our souls? Well, it buffets your mind, which is exhausting. And then should you not resist it, you give into it, that brings condemnation, which is exhausting. So what that means is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Speak to it when it's still just a temptation. Speak to it. See it coming a long way off and avoid it. Avoid those websites. Avoid hanging out with that person. Don't look for opportunities to go to that office, that cubicle. Don't go to that place of business to go hang out with that pretty thing or that handsome dude. Avoid temptation. Don't run with drunks. Don't run with drinkers. Don't, don't go to 
game system. Don't go to those chat rooms. Avoid the things that cause you to fail and sin. Block websites if you have to. Get off the internet. Fast it for a month. It is possible to fast the internet for a month. You will be okay. And you don't understand. Listen to me. You don't understand. You can do it if you want to. I just don't think you want to, which is why you're like, you don't understand. My boss needs me on the internet. Well, then let the boss use you on the internet to go research some kind of statistic and then get off the internet. You don't need the boss's, uh, the boss doesn't need you on the internet at home. Sure is hard to help people that make excuses for why they should stay the same. Death is a great motivator to do better. Verse 12, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Now, here's more commands. If I, th I thought we were free from laws and commands, but here's more. Keep away from worldly desires. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. So that's an exhortation. If we're going to call ourselves a Christian, we should live clean. I just had lunch today with some folks, and I saw... Uh, I saw a Christian friend of mine, pretty sure they were drinking at noon. Honestly, like who needs a beer at noon? Who, who's got who's to have a beer at noon at lunch? But this is a Christian friend of mine, and they're killing their witness. When you're a Christian, you lose all your rights, and your only right is to live clean and not be a stumbling block, which is what this verse says. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then if any, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. They will give honor to God when he judges the world. I'm trying to hit this footnote. It won't let me click on it. Well, the day of visitation. Don't give the world a reason to hate you. Don't let them wait with bated breath for you to fail and then you reward them with failing. Live clean around the pagans. Live clean around the pagans. Let your holiness, let it be like an event that you're competing in and know that they're watching you to judge you and aim for the gold medal. Don't flunk out. Don't fall out. Live clean. So they would glorify our God in the day of visitation. Verse 13, for the Lord's sake, respect all human authority. I don't like that verse personally, especially depending on who's in authority. I've not been happy with about the last three presidents. In fact, I think they've all been pretty inept and gross. But the Bible tells me to respect all human authority. Whether the king as head of state or the officials he's appointed, for the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. Now we're talking about police. So here's a verse, as much as I don't like our presidents, here's a verse that says, I got to honor the presidents and pray for them. And as much as you may not like police, this verse 14 says that you got to pray for the police and respect them. I've never had any issues out of police or even when we were like racially profiled. You had, a white guy can be racially profiled. Yes, when there's majority privilege, the minority might be profiled. So I don't know if you know, this face does not have white privilege in Africa at all. Uh, in fact, you probably guess that I stick out a little bit in Africa. 
And I don't mind. It doesn't bother me a bit. I'm called to be there, so there's a grace to be there. But I've been targeted a few times for being white, and I've been mistreated and been rude to. And, you know, that's all right. We've been pulled over by cops and bribed. Not even subtle, just give me money. And, and I've been shook down at airports in Africa before for a bribe because I'm white. And apparently that's what my privilege gets me is a shakedown. Give me money. One time I bribed my way out with a gospel track, which was pretty cool. I don't know where the ethical dilemma is there. They want to bribe. I give them the gospel. They're happy. I'm happy. I get to go through customs and come home. Feels like a win-win to me. <laughs> I don't know. Quit feeling like you're the only color being picked on. You listen to stupid and it makes you stupid. You're not the only color that gets picked on. Lots of color gets picked on. And for what it's worth, whites are the minority in the earth. Whites are the minority in the earth. Not that that makes us special, but for what it's worth, according to critical race theory, you can't be racist if you're the minority. Well, in the general scheme of things, whites are the minority in the earth. Way more blacks, way more Latins, way more Asians than cottontail. Like over a billion Asians. If you could count India as part of Asia, now you got two and a half billion Asians, a billion blacks, a billion Latinos, and I don't know, 700 million whites, 500 million whites. I don't know. Don't keep count. They're not all my people. Jesus' people are my people. So let's get off the skin color thing because it's pretty petty. Did you know it's only skin deep? Culture is the real issue because that's of the heart. God doesn't judge us for skin color. He judges us for heart conditions that run much deeper. All right, so verse 14 of the uh, respect the officials the king has appointed for the king sends them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. <laughs> I was at Taco Bell yesterday and the, an officer had a, somebody pulled over and I was like, oh, look at there, officer's got somebody pulled over. And then a second officer who I know he pulls up. I was like, oh, look at there. You got backup. This is not going to go well. So I'm slowly kind of creeping rubbernecking through the Taco Bell drive through because Taco Bell's Mexican for manna from heaven. And I'm rubbernecking and slowly the cop pulls everybody out of the car. And I'm like, uh-oh, here we go. And, and then the officer goes and gets the canine like, here we go. It's on. Sniff test. And that dog walked around the car and sat down. I went, uh-oh, somebody's going to jail because that that car just, it just failed the meth test. And so the king ordains police to punish those. Now for what it's worth, the cops were white and so were the drug addicts. They were all white too. They were pulled over for some reason. But you know, when you pull somebody over and all of a sudden there's a certain smell and there's certain things you see in the car, well, now you have reasonable suspicion. They were punished. I'm glad they were punished. I don't want drugs freely flowing in my streets. In my parking lot, my Taco Bell parking lot, manna from heaven should not have methamphetamines near it. I don't want to get high off of my taco manna. I want to have taco manna. I want heartburn <laughs> and not an addiction or I don't know what meth does to you other than meth you up. Verse 15, it is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. Church, let's live honorable. Let's be as honorable as we know to be. And there'll be another step up in honor later. But here's this promise and really a command. Let us live honorable so that our honorable lifestyles would silence ignorant people 
who make foolish accusations against us. Now, as an observation, look at how judgmental this verse is. Number one, we have to live honorable lives. That requires judgment. What's honorable, what's dishonorable? Let's get rid of the dishonored, let's live honorably. Two, silencing ignorant people. That means God looks at some people and says, man, they're stupid. Ignorant, but we know what that means. It's polite code for stupid. And he says they make foolish accusations. So here's our third level of judgment. They're not just accusations, they're foolish accusations. What do ignorant people do? Well, they do ignorant things. But what do honorable people do? They do honorable things. So let's not be as the ignorant fools. Let's be as the honorable saints so that we can shut the mouths of those who make foolish accusations against us. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves so don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. This would speak to the, the, the statement that says, well, you know what? I have liberty in Christ. I'm free to drink alcohol. No, you're not. Well, I, I'm free to look at things. What things? I'm free to come and go as I please. Why do you want to? We're slaves. We have a freedom in Christ, but we ought to use our freedom to be honorable, not dishonorable. We ought to use our freedom in Christ. We ought to use the grace that's afforded us in Christ not to live reprobate, but to live as clean and holy and pure. We ought to be living testimonies of what God can absolutely do in a human being while they're here on planet Earth. We ought to be chasing to see how much of God we can get, how aggressive we can be for the kingdom, how holy we can be, how anointed we can be. This ought to be our endeavor, not as the upper Cumberland lives, how lazy can I be before I quit breathing? <laughs> how, how little can I do around here before I get fired? How, how slow can I walk before the moss grows under my feet? It's really pretty lame. We got to do better. Verse 17, respect everyone and love your Christian brothers and sisters. Fear God, respect the king. I'm going to be honest with you. I have trouble respecting our kings. I, I just really, really, really do. Maybe if I read King James, honor the king. Okay, I think I can honor without respecting. So maybe where a semantical argument helps me because I don't feel like our presidents have earned any respect, though their seat does justify honor. Probably, I'm going to tell you something. I don't want to blow your mind or shock you. I don't like President Biden. It's not his policies. I don't think he can spell policy right now. It's the fact that he's a meat puppet. I think it's elder abuse. And he's just being used by whoever's pulling his strings to advance the most liberal progressive policies imaginable. I didn't like Obama. But he was very stately. I liked Obama's presentation, his decorum, his gravitas. I, I had more respect for him as a president than I did Trump. Didn't like his policies. I liked the fact that he allowed the SEALs to go kill Osama. That was, I think, proper. Trump's a train wreck. I don't like any of those men. But if they were walking to our church, after I dealt with security for letting them in, I would probably stand at attention and say, Mr. President, and I probably honestly would be a little overwhelmed that I get to meet my president. Didn't, didn't vote for you guys, none of you. <laughs> didn't put any of you in office, uh, but here you are. I could honor that. I don't think I have to respect it at all, but I can honor it because it's the seat that you sit in. And I sure wish 
we could get a better person to sit in that great seat. Fear God, I can do that. Honor the king, I can honor. Honor requires I pray. Honor requires I recognize the office. I don't think I need to respect it. That might just be um, a New Living Translation paraphrase. Let's do our best to pray, though, and be honest. You know, it's not a surprise. I don't like Biden. But then again, I don't, I don't know if he's good for anything, but he's just like a space saver <laughs> for whatever and whoever's trying to accomplish things. Verse 18, let's keep reading. We got to wrap this up here before too much longer. You who are slaves must accept the authority of your masters with all respect. That's a hard word. Thankfully, we don't have slavery anymore, not like this, not like America, but we do have bosses and employees, and so we can apply this in that scenario, but we must not forget the, the context was true first century Roman slavery, and slaves were being born again. Slaves were selling themselves into slavery to pay off foolish debts. You know, if you had to sell yourself into indentured servitude to pay off a debt, you probably wouldn't go into debt again. We did away with that. We called it chapter 11. And you just get, be absolved of your debt and take no responsibility. I'm not sure how I feel about it, but it's not positive. Do what they tell you. Not only if they are kind and responsible, but even if they are cruel. So here we have to submit even if we don't like who we're submitting to. For God is pleased with you when you do what you know is right and patiently endure unfair treatment. This pleases God when you and I patiently endure unfair treatment. Now, in our bigger picture of what we're teaching on Sunday mornings with unforgiveness, some of us were taught, don't ever let anybody mistreat you. You get them before they get you. Let's read this verse again. America has taught some of us, you don't ever let anybody mistreat you. If you think you can smell it coming, you make sure you get them before they can ever get you. What does this verse say? For God is pleased with you when you do what you know is right and patiently endure unfair treatment. We would want to read this. For God is pleased with you when you punch that person in the face before they can punch you. God is pleased with you when you do what you know is right and you get them before they can get you. No, it doesn't say that because that preemptive strike doesn't please God at all. This verse, read it right there. This verse tells us that God is pleased when we endure patiently unfair treatment. We don't retaliate. We don't get even. We don't get our pound of flesh. When we patiently endure, it pleases God. King James says, for this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endures grief, suffering wrongfully. It's thankworthy. It pleases God if we can patiently endure wrongdoing. We need to teach our kids how to patiently endure wrongdoing. We shouldn't teach our kids, you make sure you go back there tomorrow and punch them in the mouth. You make sure you tell them what for. That's not what we should be teaching our kids. There's always going to be a bigger fish. There's always going to be a bigger bully. And one of these days, your kid can pop off and they're going to get popped off because you taught them how to take nothing from nobody, no how, never. And the Bible says that's not what I teach. I teach patiently endure mistreatment. Patiently endure mistreatment. Patiently endure mistreatment. Teach your children how to pray for those people who are mistreating them. We don't like that because we're Americans. Verse 20. Of course, you get no credit for being patient, 
if you're beaten for doing wrong. Because if you're beaten for doing wrong, you deserved it. There's no credit there. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. If you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. Teach your kids, hey, did you do what was right? Well, yeah. And they still picked on you? Yeah. Rejoice. God's pleased. Rewards in heaven. We've got to stop teaching our kids to be bullies. I find that when you, <laughs> when you teach your kids to stand up to bullies, they end up being the bully. I find that when you teach your kids how to, to, to stick up for themselves, you're actually training them how to be a big turd on a stick. And nobody's going to want that. They're just always in everybody's face. And nobody wants to be friends with that. Teach them how to be friends with everybody. Teach them how to extend mercy. Teach them how to extend grace. Teach them how to give people the benefit of the doubt. Teach them how to pray and ask people, hey, listen, I, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings there. Obviously, you're hostile. Can I pray for you? Prayer will, prayer will pacify this. Prayer will fix it. Let me pray for you. We shouldn't teach our kids to make a fist first and then pray once that nose gets broken. Teach them to pray first. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the warmongers. My goodness, what are you, a bunch of pack of wolves raised in possum holler? Peacemakers. Verse 21, for God called us to do good, even if it means suffering. There's that anti-faith word, suffering. For God has called us to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. I've kind of been beating up on the Word of Faith movement lately. It taught us so many wonderful things. The old timers affirmed that. But one of the things we somehow picked up on was that if we suffered anything, it must be because of a lack of faith. And yet the Bible does not say we're exempt from suffering. The Bible teaches us over and over again to expect it. And then it teaches us how to joyfully and worthily endure the suffering. God's called us to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. So suffering is just part of our baseline experience. Yes, we have faith for healing. Yes, we have faith for deliverance. Yes, we have faith to see the devour rebuked. But there's still going to be somebody that doesn't like you and doesn't want to be around you and wants to be mean to you. There's still going to be some demonized Yahoo that wants to call you a name or put you down. And you got to deal with it. Chalk it up to being part of the sufferings of Christ. Here is your example. And you must follow in his steps. King James says that he left us an example that we should follow his steps. Example for how to treat, treat and handle people when they mistreat us. Verse 22, he never sinned nor deceived anyone. He never sinned nor deceived anyone. Or as the King James says, there was neither any guile found in his mouth. Verse 23 is where we're going to really rubber hit the road. And we got three verses left here. He did not retaliate when he was insulted. Ooh, I can tell you what. I was raised at cafeteria tables in the early 80s. This was not discussed at cafeteria tables in the early 80s. When he, he did not retaliate when he was insulted. Man, all you millennials. No, no, we're Generation X. All you Generation X, you know what I'm talking about. We got the best put downs on the planet. We taught the younger generation yo mama jokes. We, we perfected them. And 
growing up in the 80s cafeteria, we're talking second grade, not middle school. Now, second grade, you could bring a kid to tears just by talking about his mama and putting them down. And, oh, yeah, well, you're fat. Oh, yeah, well, we were just ruthless. Had brace face and monorail mouth. We just pick on kids, pimple face, pizza face, just ruthless stuff. Your mama's so fat, she jumped up in there and got stuck. All sorts of things. We're talking seven-year-olds. <laughs> I don't know if that's Darwinian, Darwinian evolution on the playground or what. And then if you couldn't satisfy it, picking a fight or running your mouth on cafeteria, they like, all right, come recess. Meet me at the pirate ship. We had a pirate ship at second grade full of mulch. And you just go duke it out. And the teachers kind of let you do it. See, I don't know. I think maybe they were gambling on it. But that was the early 80s, 81, 82, 83. And even before that, you know, dads would help you fight it out. And they'd gamble on you too. <laughs> Here, son, use this rock. Scriptures say, and this is the example we're to follow. When Jesus Christ was insulted, he did not retaliate. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he was disrespected, he did not return fire. Why can't we take a little bit of disrespect? I'm not talking about his parents with kids. We need to teach them better. All the time you should ask your kids, do you want to try that again? I have to remind my kids, listen, I made you and you will never be my equal. So let's try that again. I'm sorry, daddy. I forgive you. Just don't forget your place. Our kids have to be taught their place, not, not with a warlord's fist, but with gentle, subtle reminders and sometimes some correction. Why can't we take a little bit of disrespect? Why, why can't we take a little bit of mistreatment? Why can't we take a little bit of name calling? Why are we so thin-skinned? We're not following the teaching or the example of Christ. Nor threatened revenge when he suffered. Boy, I fail that. I don't threaten verbally. I just say it in my heart. Like I said, I've burned down a lot of houses in my mind. Just going through scenarios. Any, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, somebody sent me a meme of a guy boxing a bear. Apparently a bear escaped and this guy's fighting it. He's on top of it, beating it. And the meme says, every man has daydreamed for this scenario. And I laughed and I thought, that's exactly right. We have daydreamed for this scenario. And then another pastor sent me a meme. It's one of those classic memes of the girl saying, she's looking out the window, drinking her cup of coffee. And she, her thoughts are, I wonder if he's thinking about me right now. And then it shows him and he's looking out the high rise window. And his thought is, I bet I could snipe that guy from this distance. That's just the aggression of guys. We're probably, ladies, we're never thinking about what you think we're thinking about, so you probably shouldn't be thinking about what you think we're thinking about because it won't be right. And if you ask us, we'll just tell you, what are you thinking about? Oh, not much. <laughs> and that's when the fight will begin, right there. He didn't threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, and we have to do that. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly, and we're going to have to learn to do that. Verse 24, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. He died to set us free from all these thoughts and acts of vengeance and retaliation and to disrespect when we're disrespected and to get even, to get comeuppance. 
He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so we could be free to live for what is right. And if we're called to live for what is right, why not live for what's right? If we know to cast down vain imaginations, if we know to cast down vengeance and comeuppance and wrath, then we should do it. And the best way to do it, church, hopefully by now with these Sunday morning messages, you're learning the best way to, to let go of so much of this and to operate in forgiveness is to pray for that person who has betrayed you, hurt you, shamed you, embarrassed you, humiliated you, called you out, doxed you, slammed you, whatever. Pray for them. Just absolutely pray for them. And at some point, you'll learn to have pity and you'll think, I feel so bad for this person. They only get one life and this is how they're wasting it. You'll start to have pity on them like a homeless person or like a drug addict or some crank addict who's just bowed over like a walking zombie. This is how they get to live the one life they have. When you can see folks as wasting the one life they have to live, you'll have compassion on them no matter what they try to do to you. Peter culminates verse 24 by saying, by his stripes we are healed Verse 25, it's almost as to remind us in our quest for vengeance, wrath, and for being unsavory. He says, once you were like sheep who wandered away. He's, it's, it's, to me, it's like he's saying, you want to get mad and get even. Don't forget how bad you once were. You were once sheep who wandered away. For you were a sheep going astray. But now you have turned to your shepherd the guardian of your souls, the bishop of your souls. Yeah, we, we can get mad. Yeah, we can disrespect when we're disrespected. We can revile when we've been reviled. We can get vengeance and threaten wrath. But Peter says, don't forget you were once wayward. Don't forget you were once lost. Don't forget you once betrayed and abandoned your shepherd. And the only difference is now you've returned. Now you've turned to your shepherd. That's the only difference between us and those people we want wrath on or vindication or we want to give them a piece of our mind. Sweetie, you, you give away too much more, there's not going to be anything left to put that puzzle together with. As it is, it's still a box of jumbled pieces. How about we keep all those pieces? And how about we pray for people so they can be set free and enjoy the life we have so freely been given and get to experience ourselves?